0: Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can draw near to you. When I I reflect back on what we've been learning and and reviewing about the old covenant Jews and how distanced they were from you and and, um, how they just constantly had a, a, a lingering feeling of guilt hanging out there because they had not received full forgiveness of their sins yet and did not have that way open into the Holy of Holies. It, I, I am just thankful for the privilege that we have. I'm thankful that we can look back on what they were looking forward to and um, we can just bask and enjoy the, the blessings and the privileges you have given us. And, and I pray that you would forgive us when we don't take advantage of that. When we try to do things in our own strength and uh, our look outside of you for our source of satisfaction in sustenance and for answers and instead of just, just pulling near to you because you're near to us and you just long for us to be in your presence. Father, I know I, I have been guilty of that and, and I, I ask your forgiveness for it. Father, I, I, I thank you that we can just we can gather together as it says um, this week, we're not to neglect the gathering together and we're to encourage one another. And I know that I've, I personally find great encouragement and in studying together, and I learn more and I grow more in the presence of other believers. And I thank you for the other believers, the men and the women that are here today. And pray that this, this morning really will be a time of encouragement for us. That we will stir each other up, not only for, for love and good works, but just to want to follow you more intimately and to know you and to be um, more proactive in, in drawing near into your presence. Father, we we just want to bask in that. Thank you so much. Thank you for all that you've given us. Teach us. Send your Holy Spirit down upon us to speak words that we can understand and to convict our hearts and to encourage us that we might be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. In your son's name, amen. Okay. Um, we are come, we have come this week to the more practical application of the letter. I said last week we'd be getting there, and, and we have come there. You know, I always want to take a but I want to take a moment and just pause. We often do this at the end of a study, but I want to just pause here while it's fresh on our mind. And y'all share when you say when I say, are you enjoying this study? Tell me what you're enjoying about it. Tell me how it's affecting you. I, I think everybody will benefit from hearing that. Does somebody want to share? Yes, June does. Thank you, June. Okay. Did you all hear her? She said as many times as she's studied Hebrews, I've never had God speak to me as much as he has this time. Good. Really encouraged you, had In your... Who who you are in Christ and what you have is it, would that be true, June? Okay, somebody else. Okay, Diane says to be reminded of the holiness of God, the awesomeness of God, and that we can even go into His presence. Okay, somebody else. I don't think you do, Jennifer. I really don't think we do. and so it's, I, I repeat this all the time. I don't think you really understand the New Testament till you understand the Old. I don't think until you, you go back and look at the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the law and, and what Old Covenant uh, believers lived under, do you really understand what Jesus did? You have such a greater appreciation, don't you, of here's what I have that they were only looking forward and longing for. And then did you really understand what he did? Because, huh? And does. and does. And does. Yes. Somebody else. Yeah. Oh, okay. Can you say it louder, Jennifer? Hold on. She's got ice in her mouth. Sorry. Ice cream. Role as the great high priest but, you know and knowing more about that and just realizing more what it is now at the right hand of God mm-hmm. did you hear it this time okay 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 I think for you know I'll, I'll give you a, a personal application I had just um, early this morning I woke up very early and was kind of thinking through the lesson couldn't go back to sleep I, I had something happen yesterday which was, um, and I want to be careful what I say because people listen to this. But it was very discouraging. It, it was um, very, very discouraging, and and so much so that a, as a teacher, it 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 makes one almost want to say, okay, I, I'm just done. You know, I'm am just I'm dropping the mic. I'm done. And and I was feeling very defeated and, and feeling that that um, um, warfare that can just weigh. WEIGH YOU DOWN. If you, if, THOSE OF YOU ALL THAT EXPERIENCE THIS, SOME OF the, YOU ALL IN MINISTRY, YOU KNOW WHAT I'M TALKING ABOUT, RIGHT? AND THEN THIS MORNING AS I'M GOING OVER THE NOTES, I THOUGHT, WHOA, WAIT A MINUTE, NANCY. <laughs> COME ON. WE OPERATE FROM A PLACE OF VICTORY. What YOU'RE GETTING READY TO GO IN AND tell, TEACH THEM THOSE KEY phrase: 'We WE HAVE, WE HAVE, WE HAVE. And, and, AND IT'S LIKE GOD GOT A HOLD OF ME AND SAID, WHOA, WAIT A MINUTE, SATAN IS NOT THE VICTOR HERE. I AM. I am the victor here. So stand in what you have, recognize this for what it is and let let me be the one influencing how you feel about what what just occurred last night. So um, it was a real wake up call for me to put into practice exactly what I'm standing up here teaching you all to do because I know some of you think just because Jim and I, or Brenda, or Drew, stand up and, or, or Ryan, stand up and teach that we have it all together, but we're struggling. We're just right in the trenches with you. And in some respects, more so because we're getting the warfare that goes with it. So there's my personal testimony about it. And in the, okay, here's my opportunity to really draw near and really put it before him. Here's what happened. Here's how it's affecting me. And I really need your strength to go in there and teach this morning because it, it, it wrecks your confidence a little bit when when situations like this happen. So anybody else want to share? I always appreciate the you know, how everything ties together. Mhm. You know, it's just all in a neat package and mm-hmm. all we have to do is receive this. Mhm. It is. It is. God's word is a gift. I mean, you think about these first centuries um, Christians that were were reading Hebrews and, and considering our context. They didn't have. They didn't have this. They didn't have this at all. And we do. What a privilege that alone is. Let alone everything that we have in our relationship with Christ. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Tony. Go ahead. Tony said she's thankful for her mother teaching her the stories of the Old Testament when she was a little girl and I've heard her testimony and she had such a godly mother because those have enlightened what you know from the New Testament, haven't they? Yes, they have. Yes, B.B.? That we have with each other, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk more about that. Bibi is saying she's soft-spoken. That it's what is impacting her is the encouraging bond that we have as believers with each other through Christ. Would you say that? And how encouraging that is for our journey and for our walk. Is that how you would describe it? Okay, Karen. Uh huh. Good. I want. <laughs> <laughs> Good. You know, Good. 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 I'm glad. That's encouraging to me. Thank you. Okay. Let's dig into the lesson. And the very first word is therefore. Therefore. What is that therefore therefore? He's pointing back to things that he has already said. He's going to say therefore since we have. But I want us just to think back for a minute to everything he said up until this point really, in the whole letter because he's making a transition here. He's pretty much finished his doctrinal portions of, of his, were his sermon of exhortation. He's given exhortation throughout the book. We've seen that. But he's primarily been focusing on the superiority of Jesus Christ because what, why is he focusing on that? This should be top and center of, of our minds. Why is he focusing on that? What's the context of having written this letter even in the first place? We've got first century Jewish Christians who are being persecuted and the temptation is to go back to the old covenant way of living. So to take the path of least resistance and get out from under the pressure, exactly. So he's writing to exhort them, no, don't go back. You can't go back, there's nothing to go back to. And let me explain why, because Christ is superior and what he has done is superior to anything That is back there. So, what are some of the things that we've learned about the superiority of Jesus? He is a better sacrifice. Why is he a better sacrifice? We say that. He is a better sacrifice. Why is his sacrifice better? It's complete, it's perfect. What else? He shed his own blood, which was spotless and unblemished. He who is God-man, fully God, fully man, who was provided. We saw that last week. Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. What else? One time. One time. Once for all, one time. What was different? How is that so significant when we think of it in light of what they wanted to go back to? Yeah, yeah, they were doing it daily. They were doing it yearly. They're making, the many priests were making many sacrifices only for atonement, for the covering of sin, not for the complete forgiveness of sin and cleansing of one's conscience. Whereas Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, did a once-for-all sacrifice of his blood, his body, it's done. It's finished. It's complete. We now are saved to the othermost. We have uttermost perfection and sanctification and completion to stand before God. Praise God, huh? exactly david thomas for for the whole for the people corporately and, and anything we might have missed for the whole year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly okay other questions yes he did yes he did he sacrificed his was a voluntary willful sacrifice out of love for his creation whereas the animals were not volu- they were not volunteers at all they were not did not have a choice in it hmm okay what else think back a little bit to that superiority of the of the whole new covenant to um what the old covenant provided or didn't provide cleansing of conscience yes mm-hmm 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 what else Think about that Day of Atonement. Who, who could go in to the Holy of Holies, that once a year on the Day of Atonement? Only the high priest. And even he had to go in with a sacrifice. He had to sacrifice for the sins of the people and for himself. And what fear and trembling he must have had to go in. Can you imagine the, the anxiety, almost angst, anxiety, the fear, the awe of, of everyone waiting while he went in? And, and the fear he must have had, the weight of it to go in, knowing if my sacrifice for my own sin was not, was not completely pleasing and covering of my own sin. It was not a perfect atonement. I would be struck dead, and they'd have to pull me out. In other words, that the high priest could make a mistake.: it Yeah didn't ever make a mistake. Jesus did never make a mistake. Yeah. And where are the people in all of this? We've talked about this. Where are they? They're outside. They're at a distance, aren't they? Where, where are the new covenant believers? Inside, drawing near. Yes, Norma. Uh huh. It's, it, it provides more intimacy. If we think about what, what the old covenant people longed for, they longed for holiness. They longed to um, have that forgiveness and cleansing from their sin, a clear conscience, and they longed for greater access and intimacy with God. I, they did have a relationship with him because he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, and this is how it will look. But there was a distance between them in, in in the relationship. What we have, we do have the holy holiness. We do have the cleansing of the conscience, the forgiveness of sins through the once-for-all sacrifice, and we also have free access into the throne room of grace and greater intimacy with God. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to be in his presence. You know, we didn't look at that verse. We've talked about it. When Jesus died on the cross, when he'd given his body in his blood. What happened in the temple? The veil was ripped top to bottom. I and mean, if you read about that veil, I've read accounts that it was as much as 18, eight inches thick. So I cannot imagine the going in the temple and seeing that thing torn top, plus it was very, very tall. So it was really God showing, I did this. The way is now open. Can you imagine? The way is now open. For everybody to come in and have access with me without fear, without trepidation, without anxiety, free access because you have been cleansed, you have been forgiven by the blood of my son, and now we can have full intimacy, me with you, you with me. But we could just stop right there and go home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what they have. And remember all those things we, those of you all that were in here last semester, we saw, for, this is where you have to have the Jewish, mind, the Jewish mind on, Jesus was better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Aaron. He's better than anybody they would have held and esteemed as someone to look up to or to emulate. He is better than that because he is the fulfillment. All of that, we saw that in the last, all of that was a shadow of what was going to be reality. He is the reality, capital R. He is it. He is um, everything that was pointing to, he is it, and he is here, and he has provided the way. So therefore, therefore, what do we have? Okay. What So therefore, and you notice that key repeated phrase, we have we have confidence. What kind of confidence? Confidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What else? What does it say right here? That by the blood, by the new and living way, we have confidence to go where? Into the holy place into the very holy place and what else do we have we have a great priest Okay, let's go back and look at a couple of these cross-references was one of those a little odd to you that was in the lesson because i think i gave you the wrong one <laughs> no right here there's another one in the first one. I said Hebrews six. It should be Hebrews four. Did did it not make sense? Did you try to make it make sense? <laughs> it's amazing what you, can do when you're you know, um, I've done that before, where I'm I'm looking up a Greek word and I'm on the wrong one, and I'm doing everything I can to make it fit, and um, really doing some gymnastics to make it fit and then realizing I don't even have the right definition (laughs) I looked at the wrong word because a lot of those reference sources you look at are in really tiny print four four four. fourteen does this make more sense sorry about that I didn't I didn't notice it till last night that was a little too late for you um read my mind (laughs) y'all you're supposed to read my mind um If we go to 4, 14, oh, since then, same word, since then, we have, boy, it's almost a repeat, isn't it? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You notice the repetition of those words? Since then we have a great high priest, confidence, draw near, let us, hold fast. We're going to see all of those things this week. He's repeating what, what we have. And then turn to seven twenty-three. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weaknesses uh, in their weaknesses high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever do you see in both of those therefore back to what i've said all along and how I've proved it with everything I've said and contrasting the old with the new and the superiority of Christ. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, therefore, since we have a great high priest, the old covenant um, Jews were looking forward to what they would have one day that they didn't have. We have it. Now that we have it, do you see what he's going to say? What's that, what's that key repeated phrase he's going to start saying now? We're going to see it the rest of the book. Two words let us the the, the the salad passages let us let us live this way so you want to know what it looks like you we know what it looks like to live as an old, co- old um, covenant believer we've seen that you've lived it actually even though we're not jews we've lived it haven't we how have we lived it how have we lived like old covenant believers A checklist? Thinking do something bad enough that it's not covered. Okay. Thinking we can do something bad enough that's not covered? Not having confidence? Not having confidence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kim? Yeah, it's kind of what we talked about last week. It's exactly what you're saying, but the flip side was what we talked about last week. This is who you are. This is what you have. And when you have a greater assurance of what Christ has done for you and what you have in him and what your standing is, then you live, you, it flows, you flow out of that. You flow out of the assurance that you have rather than trying to live like a, an old covenant Jew and, and trying to please God or living with guilt. All the time feeling like I don't measure up, that I, I have to do something. Yeah, Tara. Uh huh. Oh, say that again and louder so they can you all hear her? Okay. Okay. But it's uh, free and fearless confidence, fearful courage, boldness, and assurance. Show for courage, boldness, assurance, free and fearful confidence. So if you're not experiencing that, maybe we're not living as a new covenant believer. Because he says we have, since we have, he doesn't say since you're seeking, he says since we have. We have the confidence to enter into the holy places. We have the confidence through the new and living way to be in nearness to God, experiencing access and intimacy with our advocate sitting at the right hand of God. Thank you, that's good. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So let us, how are we to live? So we know because of all, because of everything we've seen clear back here about what Christ has done and who he is therefore we have confidence we have a a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God interceding therefore now let us which tells us how we are to live as new covenant believers how are we to live what's the first let us that he says how do we live in the light of who we are? Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Did you read that quote at the beginning of the lesson by John Piper? Did you like that? Drawing near is not moving from one place. To another, it is a directing of the heart into the presence of God who is as distant as the Holy of Holies in heaven, yet as near as the door of faith. He is commanding us to come, to approach Him, to draw near to Him. And all of this for our joy and for His glory. He does not need us. If we stay away, He is not impoverished. He does not need us in order to be happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. But He magnifies His mercy by giving us free access through His Son in spite of our sin. To the one reality, notice the capitalization pointing to Jesus, that can satisfy us completely and forever, namely himself. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At the right hand are pleasures forevermore. So draw. we can draw near without fear. Okay. What else are we to do? Let us what? Hold fast to what? So we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? How can we hold fast? What's the encouragement there? To hold fast. Because he uses a for clause. For what? Because he is faithful. He is faithful. He is the one. We hold fast because he's holding us fast. Somebody, let's go to Hebrews 6, 13. Through 20. And somebody else read. Somebody has a good loud voice when you get there. Hebrews 6 13 through 20. When we're thinking about He is faithful, this reinforces. We've studied this last semester. Anybody there? Okay, loud and clear, Norma. Okay, hey, so he, if you all remember, he made an oath. Did he need to make an oath? Because his word is his word. His word, by his spoken word, he created the heavens and the earth. His word is good enough, but for our benefit, because we are weak, because he understands our needs, and he wants to give us assurance. I'll give you an oath. I'll, I'll bend down to your world and your level, and the thing that you understand, and, and because I know it's hard for you, to grasp that my word is good enough, but I'll give you an oath. I'll swear by myself that I am, I will be faithful to you, so I I can hold fast without wavering, because he is because he is faithful. Hold fast because he is, he is faithful. I can take that check to the bank and cash it, and it'll clear every single time, every single time it'll clear. Okay, what else do we do? Let us what? Consider what? Okay, did anybody look up that word stir up? Okay, what'd you find out? You like that word, Tara? It, it, does. it, it does, it means to provoke, it means to irritate, It means to incite. So explain that. Let us consider how to irritate one another to love and good works. (laughs) What's he saying? Say it louder. Oh, (laughs) that irritates you? Okay. What else? It's, it is, don't remain, it's a positive irritant, if there is such a thing. It is. It's a, yeah, it's encouraging accountability. Accountability. If you all ever, if if you participate in in an accountability relationship, that's a stirring up. It really, because it's, it's, um, it requires, you all know that, because we're in one, it requires sometimes saying, well, you know, I kind of think maybe your heart's not quite right about that. And it requires that. That's a stirring up, that, that a risking of irritating someone a little bit, but toward love and good works, toward being more Christ-like, toward repentance of sin is this kind of stirring up. But, yeah, consider how to stir up one another to love and in, in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, let's talk about that not neglecting meeting together. Have you done that? Why is that so important? Okay. So if I neglect a meeting together, my mind can get full of the world's thinking instead of the word. And what are some other reasons why it's so important to not neglect meeting together? Yeah. I think I did. It's evangelical, too, because there's a lot of people out there who might, on first glance, be uh, attracted by the community and by how you care for one another mm-hmm. and take care of one another. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good point. It's an evangelical tool. Okay. What are some of these other verses said? You know, when, when Karen was saying she likes to look up these cross-references um, in Hebrews and Colossians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, not one. What, what are some of, for example, in 3.13 of Hebrews, what does it say? Exhort everyone on one another every day. Why? Yeah. So that you don't risk being hardened by sin. That's a little bit of what Bibi was saying. If I'm not in the fellowship of other believers, it's too easy for the world to press in and influence my thinking and my living. Exactly. Colossians, what does it say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. In all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yeah, we're to do that together. What did she say? Okay, what's well, so funny? I don't say anything about instruments. Well, if Steve were in here, I'd say it says hymns. <laughs> It does say hymns. It's biblical. <laughs> what? Rarely. Rarely. <laughs> Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing, it says in First Thessalonians. So it's not just Hebrews, and it's not just these struggling Christians that are told, encourage one another, exhort one another, build each other up, admonish one another, What are some other reasons? I want you to really kind of think a little bit deeper. What are some other reasons? Why is it so important that we meet together as believers? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, When we are tempted, I have a a note uh, by the Sermon on the Mount that says, when we hide, um, we uh, we are to hide when we're tempted to show up. Show up when we're tempted to hide. Show up when we're tempted to hide. Um, yeah. Because a lot of times we choose to not go because of our feelings, or we choose to not be encouraging to someone because of our feelings, mm-hmm. and our humanness. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we actually do come and fellowship, that's all stripped clear. Okay, it Let's is see. when we do, it's stripped clear. What were you going to say, Lucia? Come on, it's
1: easy to
0: So what Lucia is saying is if we're not alert, if we're not together, we're in de- we're at risk. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Phyllis. We do draw strength. Yes, it does. Birds of a feather flock together. Can your mother tell you that? Yeah. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's, I'm honest, I'm honest that's why I show up, because we're supposed to. And those are usually the sermons that like strike my heart. We we are called to to corporately worship together. There's something that occurs when we're together as a body. The thing that kept I kept thinking about that maybe I should have put a cross reference in is if you go back to those verses on spiritual gifts, and they talk about how we're each. Um, Christ is the head. We are the body. We're each members one or the other, and we need each other, and that's why we have different spiritual gifts because each one has to function and work together, and if one is not, the whole body suffers. There's just something, I think, that just happens. There's, I'm like Lynn. There's times I don't want to get up on Sunday morning. I'd rather sleep in. And, and I, not, my, I, am not, I may not like the music and the sermon may not even do that much for me because I'm tired. I'm sitting there. If I get warm, then I start falling asleep on that soft pew. But, but you know what? There's something that just happens. I can't explain it, but there is something that occurs of just being together in, in that setting. In, in coming together in a Bible study like this, we learn and we grow from each other. Someone over here shares something that was exactly what someone over here needed at that point in their life and in their day. And then also, we—I think we—you know—this church is really good, is, is outstanding on good biblical teaching and teaching good theological thinking. We have great pastors and staff that can do that, and we—I think we learn good theology corporately. I don't—I yeah, you can go home and read a book. But when you're in a class and you're hearing other people, don't you think, Drew? Would you agree with that? There's just more that comes out. Please pipe in anytime you want. Um, that, that happens when we're in a corporate setting. And the Holy Spirit is there with us. Yeah, Norma. <laughs> 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 I don't know if you're probably all this bill, but uh, you really need to reach out to the younger ones. to get this message across that if we're not gathering because we're so good, we really gather to help each other have this hope and not shame and not heal. Those two things are weapons, yeah, you said, yeah, to yeah, well, he, he uses that, right, he, he does do use it. Right,
1: and you work with a lot of young people,
0: yes. and I've heard Jim say that a lot in here you all recall it's not his dad would say it's not all it's not about you maybe someone needs you to show up and, and it isn't about you and and that's I love what you said because um, it brought out encouraging one another. Part of our responsibility, living new, as a new covenant believer, is not just getting but giving. It is giving. Let me read you this one quote. Um, he George Guthrie says, "Our identity in Christ is a corporate identity, in which we are individually um, individuals meaningfully related to the whole. We are not self-made, and we are not self-maintained." Yeah, we weren't intended to live in, in isolation. God didn't intend. We're part of the body of Christ. Gathering is not an option, it is a commandment, it, it is an um, imperative. Yes, don't neglect doing this, as is the habit of some. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're missing out on just the spirit that is there when believers gather together. Yes, Kim, you had some... By saying hello, hi, how are you, and just noticing they're a human being and recognizing they have words, that they're there. I mean, an encouraging word, an encouraging action goes a long way. And, you know, I would encourage you on something like that. If someone says something, let them know. Let them know. Say, hey, you know, when you said that in Bible study or when you stopped me that day, you know, I had someone recently tell me, you know, you make me feel like I, I am worth talking to. You know, this poor girl just feels like she's really rejected. She goes, you, you really, because I stopped and talked to her. And just how are you doing? And engaged. She goes, you know, you, you, you really made me feel like I had some worth by doing that. And how sad is that for her? So, um, and we do need the, those encouraging moments because we all, we all struggle. We all struggle. Um, Drew, what, what are you doing the second hour? Uh-huh uh-huh okay 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 then that kind of tells me what I need to do where I need to go in my last 10 minutes thanks okay so next up is um, our fourth warning what was hard about this warning? was anything hard about this morning these warnings are they're difficult they're um, they're yeah they're hard when you looked at it, was there anything about it that you had questions or you struggled with or was it pretty clear cut? It's kind of what? It's pretty brutal, isn't it? How is hows it brutal? Yeah, you're not. Who's he talking about? How do, who does he describe here? You think? Okay, one person says believers, one says adversaries. So who is he? Who is he described? An apostate. Okay. Right. Well, we can interpret that different ways too. <laughs> uh huh. The the warnings are hard, it's like the warning, this one's probably, uh, besides the warning in Chapter 6 that we did last semester is the second most difficult one, but I think we can come to some agreement on some real knowns. What does this, who we're talking about here, let's use the words from the text, what are they doing? What are they doing? What do the words from the text say? Yes. They are I mean I'm agreeing with you. I'm just trying to get you let's let's use the words let's just stay focused on that. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the the truth. So that deliberately means voluntarily, intentional. There is a, it is a present tense verb continuous action. This is a settled course of action that they that they were doing. It's not a Let me tell you what it's not. It's not just a lapse. It's not someone who's struggling or has had a temporary lapse into sin. I don't think it's that. This is deliberate, high-handed. And look at those three, look into the next verses in 28, 29. Look at those, those explicit verbs. What have they done? I don't think there's any question here. Okay, they've trampled underfoot the word of God. Trampled means they treat it with contempt, with utmost contempt. They profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Treated as They've treated it as unholy. And they've outraged the spirit of grace. That means to arrogantly insult, to treat with contempt. So... When we think of who whoever this is, what does it say? No longer remains for them. There remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. Why does there remain no longer a sacrifice for sins? What have they done? They've told. They've turned their back. What'd you say, Jennifer? Rejected. They've totally rejected, in the trampling, in the profaning, in the um, outraging the spirit of grace. They've said, "I don't. I don't want that. I don't want it at all. Not at all. I am totally rejecting it. I am willfully on a a deliberate, subtle course of action against it." And there remains no sacrifice of sins because there is no other way. We learned that last semester. If you reject this, there is no other way for forgiveness of sin but only through Jesus Christ. So if you reject him, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing but a fearful judgment of falling into the hands of the living God. Does that make sense? That's something we can all agree on. Now, depending on what your theology is, then you could say, well, was this person ever saved or was this person not ever saved? And that we won't settle in here in five minutes. How's that for escaping a can of worms? <laughs> well I just think that, God that. He knows, God alone that. knows that. God alone knows that. Yeah. I think a couple things you have to keep in mind, remember, and I said this when we were in Hebrews 6, you have to keep in mind, this is first century Jewish Christians. Who's our audience? You know, because I wrote out here, who who was the author, uh, who did he have in mind when he wrote these verses? And he has in mind those people in this first century context that for a while had, they received the knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is, but now they're deciding, no, I don't want it. I don't want it at all, and I'm going to walk away from him. He's saying, you do that, there's nothing for you. There is no sacrifice for your sins. And if you go back to Judaism, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. So we have to keep that in mind in interpreting these, and we have to keep in mind, I, I don't see any place in here for someone who's just struggling or who is temporarily Caught themselves in a life of disobedience. Because what I see in here, beginning, before it and after it, is a whole lot of assurance. You know, and that, I like what one pastor I listened to this week, he said, Hebrews is dripping with assurance. It's just, it is, it's dripping. What, what does he say? We have, we have, we have, we have. Look at all that we have in Jesus Christ. So there is assurance there. Yes, Tara? It does give some weight to our sin. No, but I, can, but I can see that. I, to, what I'm thinking of when, when I'm hearing you say that, and I agree with you, is, is there's always that balance. <laughs> to me, there's always, and you don't want to get out of balance, as um, recognizing what's in, how awful the wretchedness is sin, and how awful it is that it required the sacrifice. And, um, but then also recognize, not getting stuck there, that I'm just, just a depraved, wretched person who has no hope. Because on the flip side is look at what we do have, the assurance that we have, the confidence that we have of, of knowing our position in Christ and who we are. We are new creatures in Christ. So it's, it's back and forth. I don't ever want to lose sight of how serious sin is. And I always want to, you know, even in this situation last night, uh, you know, so somebody I called for counsel about said, well, what about the motivation of your heart? Where was the motivation of your heart in that situation? I said, that's a really good question, and I need to hang up and think about that. And, and some of it wasn't right. And I had to confess that. So, so there's, but, but, at, but at the same time, I had to also say, but wait a minute, here's where I am in Christ, and the, I stand in a position of victory here. Does that make sense? Am I making sense on that? Those are kind of truths that are hard to catch and keep them in balance. I don't want to get skewed one way or the other. Yes, Norma. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing too that is pretty clear what's going on here I mean it's 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 a I'm shaking my hand in your face I don't want you period yeah your another watched last night oh I heard about it but I didn't watch it Was it a documentary or a movie? It's a, yeah, a Docudrama. Documentary, yeah. Um, one of the people later stood up and said, "I will not believe in a God that's supposed to be a God of love. It doesn't allow me to love who I." Yeah. yeah I will not believe in God yeah. yeah. wrong. I knew it was bad when my two liberal cousins were posting all over Facebook. We should watch it <laughs> I, I knew I knew that that I that um, I, I didn't need to watch that I wouldn't like it. Okay, let me wrap up real quick uh, and and then give Drew his full time, but it it goes on, you know, we just ran out of time. It goes on. he says, but but those those, those words that are so important, the therefores and the buts, Recall the former days. He points them back and he says, but remember, remember when you had this first love of Jesus Christ and you were willing to suffer for him and joyfully accept the seizure of your property and you would go and, and, and uh, that word have being partners is koinonia, you know, that fellowship, the sharing in with those who were um, um, in prison and then treated so badly. And remember in these days, prison didn't provide food for you. Somebody else had to bring it from the outside. So these were people taking food and, and blankets and, and things that these people needed to survive into the prison and joyfully doing that and suffering reproach themselves because they were going and helping them. So remember that you did that, and therefore don't, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. And then he incursions, you have you have need of endurance. Jesus is coming back. He is returning. It's just a little while. Now, God's definition of a little while and ours is a little bit different. But a little while, he who is coming will not delay. And he will, he will return and he will come from you. And all of this will end. Keep your mind focused on the Ford. And then he quotes that famous phrase out of Habakkuk, but my righteous shall live by faith. And if you know the story of Habakkuk, and we'll talk about it next week, in the context of that, they were going to suffer greatly. Habakkuk was going to suffer greatly for what God was about to do to the children of Israel. But he says, my righteous shall live by faith. In looking forward to what I'm going to do and in hanging on to the promises and hanging on to the fact that, that he, he is faithful. And we'll look at that next week because we'll move into Chapter 11. He's going to define, he's going to take us through 40 some verses of this is what faith is. And this is how you live in the light of it. Let's look back to how all these people of the old, who didn't even—they were only looking forward to what would come, not what they already ha- what you already have. How they lived by faith and stood on the promises of God, and give—he's given them that encouragement. We're out of time. We're going to stop. Take a quick break.
1: I want to I want to chat with you a little bit about uh, this idea of motivation. By now, you know. Uh, Pretty well, I'm sure, the context of this book. I heard you talk about it two or three times this morning. I'm sure you've talked about it 30 or 40 times before that. These Jewish people who had at one time chosen Jesus, viewed him as the rightful Messiah, the culmination of what their faith was about, and had given their lives and placed their faith in him, are now at a point through either external pressure, and that seems to be a lot of it, persecution that they're facing, uh, social pressure and those things through external pressure pressure or um, through an internal fading of passion even if you will uh, that that maybe this whole you know I, when I pictured myself following the long-awaited Messiah, I pictured a life a little bit more glorious than this. I pictured a life a little bit more victorious than this and and some it, it seems actually from from some of the way even it talks in 10 and in, I want to say, 12 or 13, makes it sound like some of the harshest persecution is maybe behind them. You used to visit people in prison, those kinds of things. Um, and so some of that may have even faded a little bit. But there is a slow and steady wearing down of a person to deal with, uh, to live in a culture society that does not see things the way you do. And, and that uh, to have a faith that places a strain on your relationship with the people you most love and with your neighbors and those things. And and so you can see how it would be simple or how it would be kind of easy to, over time, give up meeting with one another, to just not really feel it this morning, to not want to get up and keep doing this thing. And, And to some were, I believe, facing the temptation of a swift and quick rejection of Christ to just say, I don't want any more of this, and to step away from it back into their Jewish roots. And I believe some were in danger of slowly fading away from Jesus. As life kind of beat them down. And and so they're dealing with this thing, and and really, this is, even though we're not in that specific context today, that same issue has been a problem throughout church history. Um, From the beginning, when Jesus um, steps up early in his ministry and he's gaining some steam, but then you see his own family comes and doesn't seem to buy into who he is. They try and bring him back, and then the religious leaders are rejecting him, and so it looks like, man, it looked like this, this ministry was really about to take off, but some of the religious leaders that we expected to love him are rejecting him, and his own family is kind of doubting who he says he is, so maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't all we thought it would be, and it's right at that point in Jesus' ministry when he stands up and he preaches the minister, or the parable of the sower in the field, and a sower goes out into the field, and he, and he Spreads seed everywhere he goes, and Jesus says, and it lands on these different kinds of soil. The kind of the point is to say, like, not everyone is going to follow this, but that does not negate the truth of it. But but he does list these two different kinds in the middle of it, and that is this this seed that falls amongst rocky soil that shoots up really quick and then withers and fades. And early on in the church, there there were people who fit in that category who grabbed a hold of this and loved it and, and kind of burst forth with this passion and then quickly withered away. And then this other kind of soil where, where it grew up, but it grew up amongst thorns and weeds that slowly over time, the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth and whatever else it may be, choke it out. And that faith um, slowly drifts away. Jesus said at the beginning that it would happen. And all the way up today, I'm sure every one of us in here could tell stories of people we knew, loved ones or acquaintances, people we went to church with that seemed to at one point have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And and then whether it was out of nowhere and came as this complete shock or surprise to everyone that they rejected that, or whether slowly over time you just saw a little less of them at church on Sundays, stopped showing up to other events, and, and over time they just seemed to drift away from Jesus, this has been um, something that we have faced all, all throughout our history as a church. Um, and, and the truth is, we've probably all experienced um, the temptation of this to some degree. Um, you're, you're not real, you're not a real human being if you have not at some point um, felt a fading of passion and of love in your heart for the things that you once cared about a lot. Um, If you have not had times where you've wondered if this whole following Jesus thing is worth it, um, and and whether that's for just short glimpses, short seconds here and there, or maybe extended, maybe months or years that you've wondered those things, all of us have faced that temptation. There are some that do not respond rightly to that temptation, (laughs) and they end up walking away. One of the problems is that on the surface, Christianity doesn't seem to, on the surface, seem to offer a lot of motivation for remaining faithful to it. Uh, I was I was talking just Sunday with uh, a former student of mine who is who's in our campus who's at the table, um, and and now he's uh, he's a flight instructor here in town. And he also teaches some class for aviation stuff at OSU. And one of the things he loves about it is that like half of his class is Saudi students. Um, And he loves getting to teach us because it it gives him opportunities to build some relationships and even share the gospel. And he was telling me about this last semester, this one particular uh, Saudi student that he was sharing the gospel with and getting to have this conversation. And and one of the things that this uh, student said, and this student is a Muslim, who said, yeah, I've heard about this stuff, this, you know, the Jesus and the gospel and grace, I've heard this, but I just, something about it rubs me the wrong way. I don't get if God is going to forgive you of all your sins like, what's to keep anybody from sinning like from, from more? What's, what's to keep a person going in that, to continue in their faithfulness? I had a friend who's of uh, the Baha'i faith that I was meeting with regularly for, for about two years or whatever. And, and one of the things that he really did not like about Christianity, he grew up Christian. He grew up in a Baptist home. One of the things he did not like about Christianity was watching Christians around him, like a coworker of his, who had decided recently to leave his wife. And when Paul, this is my friend, when Paul, my friend, asked him about that, like, not you, aren't you a Christian? Don't you believe that divorce is wrong? Like you you believe that just leaving your wife is wrong, right? And his his Christian friend said to him, Yeah, but I mean, I also believe in grace. And so I mean, I know, I know I shouldn't do this, but God's gonna forgive me for that, right? So, and and Paul hated that. And and and, and that really grated against him, this idea that Christianity, like what's the, what is the motivation, what is the drive for a person to actually obey the teachings of Christianity when at the outset the point of Christianity is you're not a Christian by obeying all these things. You're a Christian by, you know, grace. And, and when life is hard to do the right thing and it feels like there's not a lot of motivation from Um, from our faith to do the right things, sometimes you can see why it is easy for people um, more often to slowly drift away from that to slowly drift into a deliberate disobedience of some kind Um, contrast this with say the muslim faith which is a constant drive and motivation on a person to make sure that they are um, heaping up enough good deeds that they are practicing the five pillars strongly enough to make sure that on that day when they face judgment before Allah, that they'll be able to display, I, I did enough good stuff, I was a good Muslim, I was faithful. There is plenty of motivation to stay the course in Islam. Um, and so uh, you, you contrast those two and, and it can be easy to see, so how does that work for, for Christianity? But I believe that Christianity actually, when we look beyond the surface, actually has very strong motivations for us, very strong reasoning to stay faithful. And our problem is not that there's a lack of things to push us forward. It's that we often take our eyes off of those things. Um, that we do not keep our eyes fixed on the things that properly push us into greater levels of faithfulness and greater levels of holiness So what we see in this text, after spending most of this letter building his case that Jesus is better, he's the better high priest, he's the better sacrifice, he goes into a greater tabernacle, into a greater holy place, he's greater than Moses and greater than angels and all of these things, he's been mounting up this big case for uh, nine chapters and and nine and a half chapters into ten, and here is kind of the hinge point, He's, he's had little pauses where he's stopped and given kind of exhortation, so therefore do this. Therefore, let's be like this. He's had those. Here is kind of his major swing into kind of one big chunk of exhortation uh, from, from 10 and, and 11. Is though, though it may not look like, I believe 11 is a, an extended exhortation by looking back on what we see before us. Um, so from the back half of 10 all, all through 13 is kind of his, his challenge, his push to apply what I've been telling you. Here it kind of starts with these three big uh, exhortations are charges or charges that he gives here in this text. And, and you guys mentioned them, I heard you. The first one is this, let us, in verse 22, therefore in light of all of these things, since we have this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God. Now, this isn't a command of proximity. Um, get yourself closer to God. Um, Christianity. We believe actually that um, you can't get yourself closer to God. Um, that that we are. This is one of Paul's favorite verses for or favorite phrases for what it means to be a Christian. Little two word phrase. We are in Christ. We have union with Christ. You can't get any closer than in. Right. So you recognize that that um, if you read your Bible every day for the last month. You are not any closer to God than those of you who haven't read it at all this month. You're in Christ. You can't, you can't get further or closer than in Christ. This isn't a command of proximity. It's a command of communion, I believe, that, that we can, though, have a greater degree of fellowship, that we can have a de- greater degree of connection, that I can't be, uh, I've heard it put this way, like I'm, I am married to Amy Moss. I cannot be more or less married to her, but I can grow in my marriage with her. I can grow in my communion, in my relationship with her. And this is the call, so let us draw near to God. Um, Let us come closer to him. Uh, There's this somewhat famous quote from A.W. Tozer, I think it's in his book, The Pursuit of God. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God and still pursue him. This is kind of this this idea that that Tozer draws out that everything else we chase, what we find, whatever pleasure it may be or whatever comfort or whatever satisfaction we, we may be searching for, ultimately doesn't satisfy us and leaves us wanting more. God is kind of interesting in that God is this one thing that we go to and he completely satisfies us. And at the same time, and this is the paradox, at the same time, leaves us hungry for more. Not like an empty hungry, like other things do, but this, this like, I find my desire, every taste of him I get ought to actually increase my love and increase my capacity for more of him. And so, um, he says, uh, Tozer says, I find God, and yet the paradox is that I will never stop seeking him, that I want to keep going after him, and this is the command um, that, that our writer gives to us here. The writer says, chase this. You, you have God, now chase him. Do not stand still in your faith. Continue on. We seek to know him so then in his word. We seek to draw near to him in worship. We seek to draw near to him in the fellowship of believers. We seek to be near to God in our obedience to him, to, loving, uh, to love him Through obedience, and this is the first exhortation that the writer gives. The second is this, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That's verse 23. The confession of our hope would be specifically like the confession of faith. All the truths that I've been giving you for the last 10 chapters about who Jesus is and what he's done, hold on to that. Do not let go of those beliefs. Do not let go of that doctrine. So hold to these beliefs. Cling to right doctrine. And the third charge is consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And you guys said it. The word there is uh, to irritate or agitate. And that's, I think, old, old NIV. I don't know if new one is still this. Is spur one another on, kind of, which may even be a bad a, a good idea. That That kind of giving a a little bit of a kick, a little bit of a poke there to to kind of push forward in this. Um, This is, the idea here is that what the writer is calling is not a bunch of individuals. He's not looking at a group and saying, you follow Jesus and you follow Jesus and you hold fast to Jesus and you hold fast to Jesus. He's actually looking to you and saying, you hold fast to Jesus as a community hold on and that is I am not simply responsible for my own holding fast and for my own drawing near. I am actually responsible for your holding fast and drawing near and you for mine, that we have a responsibility as a body to hold fast together, to grow towards Christ together. of course, what's, he gives these three charges, but they do not come in a vacuum. It's not just simply these commands that, that he does. As I said, he gives very strong motivation for, um, for following through on these commands that he's given, these imperatives that he's given. And, and the first part of it comes in at the very beginning of our text today, starting in 19... Says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Basically, 19 to 21 is summing up all that he's been saying to them. Since we have this great high priest, since we have this great sacrifice, since Jesus has made a way, and the word picture that he uses is entering through the curtain, entering into the holy of holies. What he's talking about here is a really cool illustration for us and a very unfathomable reality for his listeners and for their ancestors for the past 1,500 years. This idea of when he just says kind of almost offhandedly, let's, Walk into the holy of holies. That's a phrase never before uttered. You know, no one in history has ever said, "Let's walk into the holy place," because only one person could. So you can't ever have a two. Let's do this, and that one person can only do it once a year, as you talked about, the high priest. And so this holy of holies split uh, from from the beginning of the time that God led His people out of Egypt and established His tabernacle among them. Yes, He came and He dwelled among them, but he was always separated from them by this giant curtain, two of them actually, one to go into the first room there, the holy place, and then this other really giant thick one, 60 feet high curtain um, that separated even that, that first room from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of Yahweh was said to dwell. And so from the very beginning, God said, I'm with you, but at a distance. Um, and 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 for them to even be in proximity with him, something had to die, as you guys talked about. Regular sacrifices, and then a sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, which you guys said, Day of Atonement was kind of covering all their sins. And the Bible says even more than that, actually, the Day of Atonement is to make the tabernacle itself pure because it was contaminated by being in the very presence of God's people. And so to even have a house that can hold God you're going to have to slaughter some animals. In order for a priest to even go through, he's got to sacrifice a bull for himself. There's nothing necessarily special about that high priesthood in and of itself. He still needs a sacrifice to walk in there. And so this was just to be near him. This wasn't even to be with him. No, no, don't even, don't even dream about walking into the presence of God. You don't do that. Shortly after the tabernacle was established, and, and we don't know how long. It comes to the very next chapter. Leviticus 9 is when Aaron and his sons are ordained as the priests and the priesthood establishes. Leviticus 10, so it could have been the next day. It could have been within a week. We don't know. But the very next chapter, two of Aaron's sons, I believe it's Nadab and Abihu, um, offer, it just says, unauthorized fire there at the temple. And we don't know specifically. There are some hints to say that they were drunk. In the presence of God, there's some hints that, that they did one of the practices wrong. Whatever it was, they got careless in the presence of God. These are the priests. These are the people who are allowed to get at least to the first level there. who was supposed to be a little bit closer. They get careless in the presence of God, and fire comes out from the holy place there. comes out from the presence of God and devours these people. A week in to the priesthood. A month in to the priesthood. Something like this early on. And from the beginning, the Israelites understand, we can be sort of near him, but we can't be, we can't be with him. And, and you don't even, like, you, you don't just waltz into the presence of God. You don't even get close to the presence of God in any sort of careless manner because even those that he ordained to be able to do it, when they got careless, faced the consequences quickly. Um, that's why I always think of Isaiah 6 when I think of this, that Isaiah says in there that, In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh himself seated on the throne and the uh, the train of his robe filled the temple. So he has this vision of God sitting there in the temple and Isaiah doesn't say like our worship songs might say, this is so good, draw me near Lord, I want to see more of you, open my eyes Lord so I can see, no, instead he says, oh no. He says, woe to me, I can't, this this isn't good, I should not be here. I know what happens when people get this close to God. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the sinful people. He knows what the punchline is. He knows what's supposed to happen, and that is that he's supposed to die in the presence of God. That's their reality. And so don't, this is a beautiful picture. But, but recognize the craziness of this picture as he describes. So let us walk in there with confidence. That right there, that word, is a word probably never used before when it came to talking to God, when it came to walking towards the presence of God, to come to him with confidence. No, 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 you come to Yahweh with fear and trembling and awe. We still do those things, I hope. But there is a measure of confidence that is given, that that for 15 centuries had never been experienced. He is describing a reality that is amazing. The motivation here is grace. Grace is the motivation for being faithful with two kind of related nuances to it. I think in this passage specifically, the first is the ability itself. So why draw near to God? Because for the first time ever, you can. Why wouldn't you? I think of uh, Acts 4, when Peter and John are walking into the temple, and there's this beggar sitting there, and, and he's a lame man who hasn't walked his whole life, and, and he asks them if they've got any coins that they might be able to give to him, and, and Peter says to him, and I always, for whatever reason, I, I always quote Jesus in the King James here, silver and gold have I none. Um... But what I do have, I offer to you. In the name of Jesus, I say to you, get up and walk. And this man gets up and walks, but he doesn't just walk. It says that he follows them into the temple courtyard. It's like jumping up and down, right? And the question, why, why is this guy jumping? And the answer is because he can. Like, why, why wouldn't you do that when you haven't been able to all your life? And that's the same idea of the, the motivation that the writer of Hebrews is giving to his audience here. You've got the opportunity to draw near to God in confidence. Why wouldn't you? Why would you step back on that? Let the very fact that it's possible for you now be a driver, be, a, um, be an impetus, something that pushes you forward to doing it now because you have that chance. And the second nuance to this is that I think the, the writer is trying to stir up gratitude in us as a motivation. That is in light of all that Jesus has done for you. Why would you not be faithful to him in response? The person who says, if all my sins are forgiven, then why should I obey, is missing what's right in front of them. Uh, My wife will tell you that I'm the world's worst finder of anything in our home, uh, that that, sh- that I cannot, like, I can, you know, and, and probably most of you could say this about your husband, that, like, I had this weird ability to look directly at the thing that I'm looking for and not see it, right? Um, so, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah it is. And, and this is, and this is like, um, my, uh, the problem is Hudson, he's got, he, our son's got the worst of both worlds, because my wife is really good at losing things. And I am really bad at finding things. And our son has inherited her ability to lose stuff and my ability to find stuff. And so he's just going to be in trouble for his whole life. But but literally what's happening there is I'm looking directly at the thing and not seeing it. That's what's happening when somebody says, if all my sins are forgiven, why should I obey? No, no, you're looking directly at the reason to obey because all your sins are forgiven. And you're staring right at it and you're not seeing it. This is the idea that the Bible brings to us over and over and over again. It is one of the biggest motivations in all the New Testament, Romans 12.1. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Because of everything he's done for us, let's give everything back to him. 2 Corinthians 8.9, Paul is challenging the church there to give. And he says, here's why. Because you know the grace that Jesus gave to you. Because he, he was rich. He had everything, and he gave it up for you. And so, therefore, does it not make sense? Does your heart not overwhelm, like, get overwhelmed with gratitude and want to give back to him? Doesn't that make sense? And, and this is regular motivation, Titus 3, 3 through 8. It's one of my favorite little kind of... Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is completely gospel in a nutshell, but one of the coolest little pictures. I'm just going to read it to you. I, I, I stumbled upon this uh, five six years ago, and it's been one that has stuck with me a lot. A great kind of summary of what happened for us in Jesus. Yeah, Titus three, starting in verse three, and we'll go through eight. I'm going to read it all the way through. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's this really beautiful saying. And and this is what really caught my attention. Is what Paul says right after it. Verse 8. The saying. What I just told to you. Is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. What does it say? So that. Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul says, if if you want God's people to devote themselves to good works, remind them, preach to them all that Jesus has done for them. And that pushes us on to want to obey him, to want to be faithful to him. Uh, I am so grateful for um, men like Timothy Keller who have really opened my eyes in the past six, seven years to the beauty of gazing on the gospel, gazing on grace as a means to push me into greater obedience to God. And I really have loved that concept and tried to really grab a hold of it. But I will tell you that it has not been as simple and beautiful and, and worked quite as smoothly as I thought. I really thought that, like, if I could really get my heart and my mind around the good news of the gospel and get my, my heart and mind around grace, then gratitude would just well up in me and the good works and the obedience and the faithfulness would just naturally flow out of it. And, and while, I, while it really does help and while it really is important and, and, and why it really um, does push me, it has, not, it has not just created this amazing, um, grateful, obedient person automatically like that. Even this beautiful and amazing motivation does not solve all my problems. Um, and that's why I said that grace is one of the biggest motivations in the New Testament. That the Bible gives us this grace as our, a huge, it might be the key motivator for us but it is not the only motivation that it gives us. In fact, it's not the only motivation that this text gives us. It gives us one set of motivations on one side of the three charges and then another, a different kind of motivation on the back half of it. So let's read Hebrews 10, uh, 26 through 31. and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So why remain faithful to Jesus? Here's another reason. Because judgment will come on those who don't. Because... There is nothing left but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume those who don't. Now verse 26 is an interesting one, for if we go on sinning deliberately and receive, after receiving the knowledge of the, truth, of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And it's interesting because it, it appears to actually contradict something that the writer has said just 10 verses earlier in the book of he, in, in Hebrews 10. Uh, starting in, I'll actually start 15 verses early in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So 14, one offering covers everything for all time. Verse 26, there's no more sacrifice left for you. And those things seem to be working against each other, which we'll come to in just a moment. But before we get to that, let's talk about this. What the writer is doing is he's making kind of a classic rabbinical argument from lesser to greater. Jesus says this, if... Uh, you as sinful earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to his children who ask of him? This was, this was a practice that the rabbis used a lot. If something is true in case A, a small thing, how much more true, is it, true uh, is it in case B, which is a bigger and greater thing? And so what the writer says here is, if it was true of the law that when you rejected it, that you received condemnation, how much more true of the very one that all of the law and the prophets was pointing to? He, he uses this phrase, how much worse? How much worse will the punishment be for that person who rejected those things? Uh, how much worse do you think will be deserved by that person? It, you, I, I heard you talk about it a little bit, and, and I, I'm sure you, you touched on it more in depth in Hebrews 6, that... When we come to this idea of perseverance and the ability to lose salvation, all those things, there are basically three major positions on what what we may call perseverance Um, whether or not a Christian stays a Christian for good. And the first one is uh, what we call unconditional perseverance. Is it perseverance? um, and this is the the kind of classic Calvinist position that is that you did not choose Jesus; He chose you, so He predestined you to be saved beforehand. And therefore, because you did not choose Jesus, you can't unchoose Him either. If God chose you to be saved, if He predestined you to be saved, then He's going to hold you firm until the end. And so you cannot walk away from that. You won't. He'll He'll keep you steady. And, and what those in the kind of classic Calvinist thing or in unconditional perseverance would say is that if a person does walk away from the faith, it really, all that does is shows us that they were never really saved in the first place. Because a person who's saved is unconditionally going to persevere all the way to the end. So a person who ends up believing Jesus and then later rejecting Jesus, they would say this person never really believed Jesus in the first place, never had a true saving faith. Um, the second position is what we call free grace doctrine. Um, and that is that one that we can choose Jesus, but we cannot unchoose Jesus. So you have free will to choose whether or not you want to believe in Jesus, whether you want to give your life to Him. but once you have made that commitment, you are good for forever there. The, the other kind of term for this is once saved, always saved. Once a person has prayed the prayer, once a person has been baptized, once a person, it does not matter what they do with their life anymore because grace is free. And so once they have been saved, they will always be saved no matter of how they end up living or even if they say they reject Jesus. No, they already chose him. They can't unchoose him now. The last one um, is, and I don't know if people ever use this phrase, but I'm just going to say conditional. Perseverance. And by perseverance, just, just to clarify, what we mean is a person perseveres all the way to the end, that they remain a Christian. Um, and so conditional perseverance is so this is you, you can't choose Jesus, so therefore you can't unchoose him. This is you can choose Jesus, but you cannot unchoose him. Conditional perseverance is You can choose Jesus and you can also unchoose him. That you have free will to say, I want to place my faith in Jesus. And you also have free will to say at some point if you choose, I reject him and I don't want him. Or maybe not even to straight up say that, but to live a life that says that. To have a life full of rebellion and unrepentant sin that just continues to live as though you're Lord and he's not. Now, when we say like, we talk about, can a person lose their salvation? It's kind of a weird way to phrase the question because I don't believe you can lose your salvation like you might lose your keys, right? It's not one of those things where you look up one day and go, where did I put that? I can't, you know what I mean? Like, how did that get away from me? It's, I don't think it's one of those things. I really do think it is a willful, we say here, a deliberate rejection of Jesus, whether that is in word where I say I no longer want him or deliberate by my lifestyle that says I want nothing to do with him and to push away. I believe just, you know, I believe that there is legitimate, a lot of people see this as kind of the midway. This looks on first glance like this is the happy medium between these two. But actually, these two are much closer together than this one is. Because both of these ones say the same thing. You cannot live your life, you cannot say you're a Christian and then live your life however you want both of these ones say, if, if you are a Christian, you will live like a Christian, right? Um, and so this I believe that there is good biblical reasoning for either of these. I can totally see how a person gets here when they read the Bible, that, that if a person is saved, that God will keep them saved, and, and, and if they walk away, it means that they were never really saved. I can see how a person gets there. I also believe that there's good biblical reasoning to believe this. I land, and you know, probably most of most of Sunnybrook and Sunnybrook staff lands here on three, um, and one of the major reasons I land on three is because of the book of Hebrews, because I don't know how you believe this when you read the book of Hebrews. I can't understand anybody reading Hebrews that talks about judgment for people who walk away and, and how they think that this is still an option biblically. I don't know how you read Jesus' sermons or teachings and, and think that this is an option biblically, but... I believe this, and one of the major reasons is because of actually this passage right here leads me a little bit to number three. It's in, I think it's in verse twenty-nine. Yeah, um, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? And here it is, by which he was sanctified. And and that's what leads me to think a person can actually be like he. The writer here says that this person didn't just appear to be a Christian, but they weren't really. This is a person who was sanctified by the gospel. This is a person who like had been made holy and, and chose to, and so for that reason, that's why I... Land on three here, and I know that's, that's not my main, this whole thing is not my main point of where I'm going, but I wanted to throw that up there for you. So, the Bible, though, what I, what, I'm, what I do want to get at is the Bible does not mind, and by this, I don't just mean the Old Testament. The Bible has no problem with using punishment as a motivation for obedience. Fear of judgment, fear of punishment as a motivation for us. Hebrews 6 said it. You guys studied that one. Hebrews 6, that when a field is there and the rain falls on it, kind of uh, representing like the gospel and God's blessings and the Holy Spirit, when the rain falls on it and produces a fruitful crop, it is blessed, it is loved, it is treasured. But a land that receives all of that and produces nothing but thorns and thistles, all it's got coming to it is getting burned up. He says that's, that's, a, that's a metaphor there. I'm talking about you whether you're going to be that kind of field who bears fruit or that who only puts forth uh, thorns and thistles. And thorns and thistles is going to get burned up. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father. And those who don't will come to me and they'll say, Do you remember the things we did in your name? Do you remember the way we saw you as Lord? And you remember the great and awesome miracles we did? And Jesus says, I'm going to say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. If you do not do the things I tell you to, I will say I never knew you. Matthew 7, it's at the very end of it. So, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the very end, of Matthew, yeah, very end of Matthew 7 is the wise and foolish builder, and it's, the, it's one or two stories right before that, one or two little sections of teaching right before that. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.22, Paul is writing to the church there and some of them are playing around with like idol worship stuff by some of the feasts that they're going to. And Paul says this, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is like, do you really want to play this game to make God angry at you? You think that you, you think you got any chance at overpowering him if you get him angry? If you make him jealous? And so there's a warning there of punishment and judgment coming. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 22. Galatians 5, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to have the exact verse on this, uh, is, let's, uh, I can like see them on the page. It's midway down Galatians 5. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who live like this, that is the sexually immoral, the greedy, um, the drunkards, the abusers, those kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. I warn you. What? 521. 521. Thank you, Nancy. Galatians 521. I warn you as I did before, that if you live like this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. There may be some of you wondering how these two motivations, grace and judgment, can coexist. How do words like confidence in verse 19, therefore, let let us approach God with, confidence, in verse 19, how does that mix with verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment? Or maybe better put, how is this, what I just described to you, any different than the Muslim who does all his good things because he doesn't want to face judgment? Is this any different than that Muslim who is trying to not have a fearful expectation of judgment, who is trying to avoid the fury of fire and flames? How do we differ from that? This brings us back to that seeming contradiction between verse 14 and verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, there is no, expect, there is, there is no more sacrifice for sins left. Contextually, you know, as, you, as, as we've been reading through the book of Hebrews, you know that contextually, when he says keep on sinning, he's talking about a willful rejection of Christ. Willful rejection of Christ. And so the issue is not that we sin to a point where we somehow run out of sacrifice. No, verse 14, by one sacrifice, he has made us pure forever. He has made us right with God forever. That is not the issue. You never run to the end of it. The issue, the reason there is no sacrifice for sins left is because you rejected that sacrifice. There is no other one to find anywhere else. The, the The only avenue you had was in him. And so this is why we have that idea in us that it's a deliberately keep on it's a will for rejection of jesus and that is why we're different than the muslim because we are not nervously piling up all our good deeds hoping to mount a good enough case for god when we get before him no no that case has already been made for us jesus's death is what made for that so i obey and I want to stick with him, but I'm not, it's not like I'm trying to get enough good things in to be okay. It's not like I only have so many strikes in my sins before I run out of those things. That's not true for us. Um, recently been introduced to this hymn. I think it's called Resting Place. And the chorus goes like this. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This is the Christian case that we make before God. Not, not I, I, did a, I, did a, I did more good things than bad things. I did enough things and, and, and never knowing and, and just hoping that you've got the tally right here on earth. That's the way the Muslim approaches is saying, that's the way the religions of this world work but it's not the way our religion works. Um, Jesus has already cleared the way for us to enter into God's presence with confidence. The only fear we need to have is of facing God without Jesus. So when we have Jesus, when we cling to him, there is no fear. We enter his presence with confidence. If we reject Jesus, then there's fear. That's the judgment. That's why actually both of these things, grace on one end and judgment on the other, those are actually both gospel motivations because he's saying this is all you get with Jesus and this is all you would get without Jesus. But both of them are actually gospel motivations for us but those who reject Jesus quickly through their word or slowly through a life of unrepentant sin have judgment to expect. But if we cling to him, we have nothing to fear because we have Jesus, we have confidence. These aren't the only motivations in the Bible. There are actually a ton of them, and a lot of them are rooted back in the gospel. In fact, chapter 10 at the end hints at one of my favorite sets of them, and, and you're really gonna, well, I'll, I'll just read it to you. This is, This is what it says in verses 34 and 36 of chapter 10. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, here it is, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, here it is again, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And, and that's, I believe, by the way, more than just heaven. There's something bigger than that even for us, even though that's a big part of it. But you'll get to that next week, so I'm not going to jump ahead on that one. Um, any questions? Any thoughts? Let me jump out to you. All right. I think we're done. Do you guys pray us out or anything like that? Or I, will, I, will, I will pray us out. Dear Father, I, uh, I believe that you are a, uh, a good Father who, who recognizes what we need when we need it. And, and uh, I really do believe that first and foremost what we need is to believe the truth about Jesus how he is so much greater and all that he has done for us. And So I ask this that, Lord, you would make those truths about how we've been redeemed and forgiven, that you would make those more than just theories in our head, but your spirit would cause those to be very concrete realities in our heart that we, that we know and that we cling to and that we find our confidence to approach you in. Um, let us all believe the gospel more, but um, I also know there are times when I just need kind of a kick in the pants and I just need to, to recognize that I don't want a life without you. I want a life clinging to you and that everything you offer is better than that other kind of life. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would be open to, to even uh, fear of, uh, of rejecting you and that that would draw us to want to draw closer and closer to you May your spirit motivate us uh, as we need it in in each point. I pray for this group as they continue to study this book of Hebrews, that over the next uh, month, the next several weeks, that you would continue to speak to them and push these truths into their heart so that they respond with loving, grateful obedience. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.